If your Bibles, go with me to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. Let me ask you this question. Let me begin here. Same place that Pastor Rusty began last week. What are you expecting this month? Probably a good question to ask in general, but particularly when it comes to Christmas and other similar holidays, we, like things like birthdays and such, we have a set of expectations whether or not we recognize them consciously or not, we are operating on a set of expectations. Christmas is often called the season of hope. So maybe another way of asking this question is, what are you hoping for? What are you hoping for? Again, whether you've recognized or have answered this question yet, I, I don't know, and maybe you haven't, but what are you hoping for this Christmas? Rusty, Pastor Rusty introduced a, a kind of a, a thought that is going to, uh, like this expectation thought that's going to permeate the rest of our Advent series. But we have this situation where we, we have this hard time slowing down. Slowing down, not just slowing down our doing, but slowing down our thinking, slowing down to process life. We have a hard time slowing down, a hard time living at a slower pace, and because of this, we miss often the gravity of what we're experiencing day by day and moment by moment. We miss the gravitas. We miss the importance. We miss the heaviness or the weightiness of what's happening. So much of What we say and do, we completely miss the nuance or the implications of that action. We we miss the 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 point being made that's not explicit in what we're saying and what we're doing. We act as though oftentimes words are just things to throw around and oh that's not what I meant, or this is what I meant, and let me let me remind you that. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, Jesus tells us. So the question is, is are we looking at that? Are we, are we considering the weightiness of the words that have come out of our mouth? Because they're more than just words. They're actually a mirror or a, a, a telescope, if you will, into our hearts. As I was reading someone on Facebook the other day, Everything being said from this person's lips in interpreting a rather uh, harmless event was interpreting it only as the event related to them. We do that as well. We don't slow down to go, am I always just looking at life and how it relates to me? Or am I thinking about life and how it relates to God first and foremost? Or am I, inter- am I interpreting, am I understanding life as it relates to me? And we don't slow down often enough to go, is this 
what's going on, what is happening. I was sitting in an upward basketball meeting uh, yesterday, and uh, the, the, the leader of the whole thing was communicating what we allow and what we don't allow at certain age groups and stuff, which was helpful. But the way she was phrasing it was the question I was asking was, so are you saying we don't allow this as in this gets penalized, or we don't allow the refs to penalize this? in the game because of the age group and what we're expecting of that age. And it could have been taken easily, what she was saying, easily, either direction. And I asked the guy at the table next to me, does she mean this way or does she mean this way? And he's going, huh, I guess it could be taken either way. Right? It's just an example. Are we slowing down enough to go, how is this to be taken? How do I understand this? We're, we're so con- we've, we've talked about this often, and I, I don't mean to be a... Uh, a broken record here, but we're consumed with our kingdoms as Rusty, our own kingdoms as Rusty, Pastor Rusty talked about last week, that we often get lost and often spend most of our time reacting to life. The things we do slow down and plan for are often trivial when compared to the glory of God and the pursuits thereof. We spend much of our life internally, externally on the defense. We're reacting to life. Instead of, and I and love the way Pastor Rusty brought this in last week, we spend most of our lives on the defense instead of proactively walking in the works that were prepared for us. We're given forethought and prepared for us beforehand, as Ephesians 2 talks about. Or we spend most of our time in, on the defense and reacting instead of pursuing righteousness and running the race. We end up stumbling, shackled, enslaved. If all we do is respond to life, and not that that's always bad, it's not the point, but if that's all we're doing or mostly what we're doing, are we actually free? Or are we shackled? And so we get lost in the trivial. We get lost responding. We get lost reacting to what's going on. And again, oftentimes if we do pursue anything, we pursue trivial things. Not necessarily bad things, but trivial compared to what we should be pursuing. And we like things like the purity of our affections. Are you pursuing the purity of your affections? Meaning the purity of your loves, the order of your loves. Are you pursuing that? It just breaks my heart to see in my own life to see supposed saints walking in such joyless misery. Sarah and I, on our way to a Christmas party last night, her work party, we were talking about the joy and expectation of what we will do in glory. And Sarah was talking about, and she didn't know I'm going to share this, so maybe I owe her a dollar for using her without her permission, but uh, so she's not in here right now, uh, so she'll hear this later. Um, 
She was talking about, you know, just her daily routine in life and what she does, whether it's folding laundry or doing dishes or cleaning poopy diapers or whatever the thing is. And this is such a blessing to my heart. She was thinking, you know, I, trying to think through those things in terms of glory, in terms of eternity, and what will be my job in eternity, and what will be my role in eternity. And, and I'm paraphrasing, but she basically says, If I get to do the same things now in eternity, but I get to do them without the struggles of my heart, without the idolatries, with only being captivated by the glory of God, then I would gladly do all the same things for all of eternity. And I just thought, oh my, like, my goodness, like, that's incredible. Do we have joy-filled expectations? Do we live life pursuing the works that He has created beforehand for us, that we should walk in them? And so, Pastor Rusty asked the question last week, I'll ask it again this week, what are we missing? What are we missing? This is the, the, the... we're all missing this, like to some measure or another. What is it that you want me to see? Or that you think I'm missing, Pastor Matt, Pastor Russ, Pastor Greg? And it's simply this, that the kingdom of God is here. That Emmanuel is here. That God in the flesh has happened. That Jesus, our Messiah, has come. I don't know, like, again, this is the danger when it comes to traditions and such, is that we become so repetitive that it becomes like autopilot, and we just say things and do things and enact things and and carry out traditions without the thought of what's actually happening. What are we actually talking about? Singing Gloria with the angels. Why? Because Jesus has come. He is upon us. The kingdom of heaven has come down and is now upon you. It is pressing in on your life. And if He has come, that means something. It means something for your affections. It means something for your head. And it means something for your hands. I wonder if Emmanuel is here means something to you. Let me ask you a different question. Are your expectations for this season wrapped up in the thought, Emmanuel is here? You know, we have weak expectations, I think, for Christmas, for much of life. 
pursue, as you know, the famous C.S. Lewis quote, we pursue mud pies in the slums when we can have a holiday at the beach. Much of that same sentiment I want to communicate here are weak expectations for Christmas. We, we chase after holiday traditions. Again, not that these things are necessarily bad, but we chase after holiday traditions. We chase after family time. If I could just get everyone in the same roof, then all would be cheery and glad. And We chase after that, that one awesome gift that will just make a difference. And, or we chase after holiday cheer. We chase after these things as though they're ultimate. And that's the problem. They're, they're fine on their own as good things that we can involve and, and desire for our lives. But when they become the primary driving force in our hearts and minds, when they become the things that when we don't get, they lead us to depression and joylessness. And they've become ultimate things. And they become ultimate things when Jesus in the flesh isn't enough for us. The fact that God would send him to live amongst us. The kingdom upon us is not enough. So I have to chase these other things. We're expecting all of these things to be bright and shiny this Christmas. Let me ask you this question. Why not have the following expectations this month? To be humbled because God broke into history to save us from our desperate plight. Why not have that expectation at Christmas? Why not have this expectation at Christmas? To find rest because the kingdom of heaven has come upon you. What would it be like to walk into the holidays expecting to find rest because I'm going to be reminded that the kingdom of heaven is here. Why not that expectation? Or the expectation to learn humble patience because God took 4,000 years to send the seed of the woman and He has come. Why not expect to know more deeply God's love for you because He sent His Son knowing the baby in the manger would have to die? Why not have the expectation that your trust in the Lord would be deepened because Christmas is a reminder that God keeps His promises? Or to see, uh, the expectation to see Christ honored as God reminds the world of His doing 2,000 years ago. Or the expectation to see God glorified by the obedience of His Son in His condescension to this earth. What are your expectations for Christmas this year? What are you hoping for? Maybe we could hope for more this year than we have in the past. I want to read for you Matthew chapter 1, verses 1-17. through 17. I was going to have someone read this uh, as Rusty did last week, and I thought I would spare uh, you all. I'm going to read the KJV version for you this morning. Yeah, we're going to be extra holy this morning. The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat Judas and his brethren, 
And Judas begat Pharaoh uh, and Zara of Thamar, and Pharaoh begat Esram, and Esram begat Aram, and Aram begat Aminadab, and Aminadab begat Nason, and Nason begat Salmon, and Salmon begat Boaz of Rachel, and Boaz begat Obed of Ruth, and Obed begat Jesse, and Jesse begat David the king. And David the king begat Solomon of her that had been the wife of Urias. And Solomon begat Reboam, and Reboam begat Abiah, and Abiah begat Asa, and Asa begat Josephat, and Josephat begat Joram, and Joram begat Ozias, and Ozias begat Joatham, and Joatham begat Achaz, and Achaz begat Ezekias, and Ezekias begat Manassas, and Manassas begat Ammon, and Ammon begat Josias, and Josias begat Jeconias and his brethren, about the time they were carried away to Babylon. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconias begat Selathiel, and Selathiel begat Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel begat Abiad, and Abiad begat Eliakim, and Eliakim begat Azor, and Azor begat Sadak, and Sadak begat Akim, and Akim begat Eliad, and Eliad begat Eleazar, and Eleazar begat Mathan, and Mathan begat Jacob, and Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. And so all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. And from David until the carrying away into Babylon are 14 generations. And from the carrying away into Babylon until Christ are 14 generations. Let's pray. Father, may we see your glory displayed in this list of names. May our hearts be changed by this list of names. They are important to you, and they are important to us. Father, thank you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. What a way to celebrate the Advent than to look at a list of names. The first thing I want you to see is this. God expects us to patiently wait on His promises. God expects us to wait patiently or to patiently wait on His promises promises. Maybe another way of saying is that we can patiently wait on His promises. If you remember, God made two very important promises. He's made multiple important promises, but two particularly important promises. One would be to that of Abraham. He says to Abraham, he takes him out and says, look at the stars. Look at the stars. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen like the stars here versus the stars compared to like a place like Canada or a place where there's not all of the, the wash of lights from the cities. And you see the brilliance of the sky. You see the multitude of stars, things that you couldn't see because of the lights from man. He says to Abraham, look at the stars. Can you number them? Well, that is the number of offspring I'm going to give to you. And those those people, they will be my people. Listen, it was at least 2,000 years after this promise, the Bible says, through Mary, that God has not forgotten His promise to Abraham. The other promise would be what he says to King David. 
I'm going to make one of your descendants to sit upon the throne and reign forever. Right? Now, that's a big promise as well. But look at the time frame. Thousands of years pass between these promises and the time of this text. Indeed, just prior to this, God had been silent for 400 years leading up to this moment. Like before, you at least had the prophets coming saying, God has promised this. Let me remind you of what God has said. Don't forget it. We need to stop doing these things and trust in the Lord here. And and God's voice is coming through the prophets. But for 400 years, nothing new has been said. He gave warnings and reminders. And for 400 years, nothing. And then comes Christ. Listen, something we can learn from this is that God may appear to move slow. Listen to me, church. God may appear to move slow, but He never forgets His promises. He never forgets His promises. Listen, you cannot judge God by our time frame. Our expectations, the way we interpret chronology and and the order of events and the timing of things, we cannot judge God by those things. He may seem to slow, may seem to be slow, or He may even seem to have forgotten His promises. But something we learn from the genealogy of Jesus Christ at the beginning of the book of Matthew is that He does not forget His promises. He has not and He will not. That's, that's part of why Matthew is listing this out as he wants us to walk away going, you know what? God kept His promise that He made thousands of years ago. Right, I mean, we get impatient when something doesn't happen within a day, right? Or a week or two. Or maybe even a couple years. We get impatient. God has been working out this promise for thousands of years. And he never forgot. It never became less important to him. It never got eclipsed by a different plan or another agenda. He never got allured away to something better or something more enjoyable. No, his plan from the beginning was the best plan. And he never lost sight of that plan until it was brought to fruition. God keeps his promises. Christmas this time of year is... Such a unique day, I think. For many, Christmas is a wonderful day. It's for good and for trivial reasons, but it's, it's, it's good. It's, it's a wonderful day. And for many, Christmas is a reminder of things that they had hoped for this past year that maybe didn't happen. For many people, and probably most of us, it's both. It's a measure of this is wonderful. We celebrate the coming of Christ and, and what that means. But, but then on the other hand, there's this nagging thought of, well, I wish this would have happened this year. I wish this gift would have come. I, I wish this change of circumstance would have happened. I hope it happens next year. And, and we're caught in the middle of this. Oftentimes it's a reminder of things unfinished. Year after year, things unfinished. Things that we had hoped for. Things that we had longed for. Good and bad things. 
And we're reminded that God has promised certain things to His people. He's promised to give us the desires of our new hearts that beat for Him. He's promised to bless His people. He's promised to give us what we need. He's promised to finish His new creation in us. Now we must be careful, I must give this warning, that we're not patiently expecting God to do something He has not promised to do. But He has certainly promised to do these things. Listen, this passage is teaching us, Christmas teaches us, I want to quote Keller here, that the mills of God grind slowly, but they grind exceedingly fine. That God keeps His promises. That God carries them out. That, that His plans may seem to move slowly, but they move brilliantly. They move effectively. They move gloriously. They move with accuracy. And what they produce is something that the hands of man could never produce. It's easy for us to forget in the middle of our lives that God keeps His promises. I've often asked someone in the middle of struggling whether it's because of sin in their own hearts or because of the brokenness of this world, what is something right now that you can worship God for in this moment? Listen, He keeps His promises. Isn't it easy to forget those in the midst of trial, in the midst of struggle, and in the midst of not getting something that you want? Isn't it easy to forget, you know what, God keeps His promises. Listen, that's a good thing for you and I, right? God keeps His promises. Listen, someone who is changed by the coming of Jesus, you can patiently wait through your physical suffering because He has promised to give you a new body. Someone who is changed by the coming of Jesus, the, the reminder that God keeps His promises, can wait through someone's terrible attempt at exhortation in your life because He has promised to use the body of Christ for your good. Or you can patiently wait on the sanctification of another person, whether it's your spouse or your redeemed child. Why? Because God will finish His promise. He will finish His task. He has promised to complete what He has started. Someone who has changed by the coming of Jesus, I wrote this down, can patiently endure long sermons because God has promised His Word will not return void. Listen, God expects us to patiently wait on Him. Why? Because he, we can. Because He will keep His promises. Listen, I, I get it. We live in a world where people don't keep their promises. Where you and I don't keep our promises. So all that is around us is a reminder of promises broken. 
The genealogy in Matthew reminds us that God does not break His promises ever. Listen, what if you're going through is just dealing with the sin that is plaguing your heart and your mind, your marriage, your relationships, whatever it is that's plaguing you or the suffering you're going through because of your body that's broken or the suffering you're going through at the hands of the sin of somebody else. God keeps His promises. The second thing I think we learn from the genealogy of Jesus Christ here is that God expects us to deal with with the reality of history. God expects us to deal with the reality of history. I'm going to define what I mean by that as we go. Modern evangelicals, Christians in our culture today approach Christmas like this. Okay, Let me me define this for us. How do they approach Christmas? How do they deal with this event? Get out the decorations. We gather gifts. We make sure we're fair in our giving. You know, if so-and-so doesn't buy us a present, then we ain't going to buy them one. Or we've got to spend the equal amount on this kid or that kid. You know, these are good Christian values to have. We make sure family gets together. Oh, and, and, and we've got to make sure that we acknowledge that it's Jesus' birthday. Right? It's His birthday. We've got to make sure we get that one in. And there we go. We've got Christmas. Check. We make sure we remember the birth of Christ. We celebrate the event. Not that these are bad things. But there's a problem, though. The way we generally approach Christmas is that it's an event to remember or an event to celebrate. It is that, but it is more than that. Christmas is not just a memorable event. Christmas is a transformational event. Christmas means things have changed and more things will change. Christmas is not just a time that, okay, that event happened then and we're thankful to God for it, oh, praise Him, and, and, and we need to do that too, but it's more than that. Though that event that we celebrate, that we remember, means things for today. It means things change, that things keep changing and will keep changing. When we remember Christmas, transformation must happen. So when we are faced with the glory of God, in whatever shape it takes, we walk away changed. Christmas, just another visible representation or another option, or option, another opportunity to see, to be confronted with the glory of God. We must walk away changed. Otherwise, all we're doing is enacting a set of rituals or tradition instead of taking the moment to see what am I really engaging in. The glory of God come to earth. Heaven come upon us. Christmas is not just an event to be remembered. 
but an event that transforms. It's the same as the Lord's Supper. It's the same as the Lord's Supper. Most of the churches I grew up going to, the Lord's Supper was this. It was a remembering of the cross. We're going to celebrate and be reminded of what Jesus did 2,000 years ago. Now, it is that, but it's more than that. The Lord's Supper is also transformational. Meaning when we are reminded, when we are confronted once again with the glory of God in the cross of Christ, the broken body, the blood that was spilt for us, we should be transformed in that moment. We should be changed in that moment. We should be reminded of who we are, but of who God is as well. We should be spurred in that moment to repent and to trust in the Lord. Our hearts should be softened in that moment. As we remember the broken body of Christ. Christmas is the same thing. The incarnation is the same thing. It's not just an event that we go, okay, great, that happened there. Good, 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 fantastic. Now we can move on. But that event happened there. Praise God. What's it mean now? Is my heart melted? By the fact that God would send His Son, Jesus, to die to to this earth to live amongst us. Am I challenged by the reality that the the heavens have come upon me? Listen, Christianity declares, declares that God has broken into history and certain events have happened. Here's the deal. How you respond to those events will determine everything in this life and in the next. Let me me say that again. If God has done something, like broken into history, sending His Son, heaven come upon us, how we respond to that makes all the difference in this life and in the next. Listen, it's always how we respond to God That is crucial. You know, giving God a high five for the incarnation is not quite a sufficient response. Christmas is an event that we must respond to. Remembering it isn't enough. God has done something that changes everything and we will be judged on the basis of how we respond to it. Now, let's talk about what is an appropriate response. Let me ask you this question. Does modern Christians, evangelicals, comprise the appropriate response? Right, Traditional Christmas celebratory Rituals, and then, you know, we go to church, don't drink or smoke, vote Republican, say a prayer of salvation, walk an aisle, serve in a ministry, but not too often, you don't want to get burned out, fill in the blanks on your bulletin, go to house scouting most of the time, and, and no cussing, right? Is that the appropriate response to the incarnation? Listen, this is the part of Christmas that no one likes to talk about. If it's a historical fact that Matthew, God, here is insisting that we believe, if we believe them, then it will make a real difference in our life. The problem, though, is that we've made 
this historical Jesus, this historical event into something more palatable, something that we can deal with more easily. Like, we have a Christmas Jesus that can be real. Like, thank God he did that. But it doesn't really demand anything of us. Like, it doesn't, doesn't actually mean something has to happen in my life today. Or we have a Christmas Jesus that can die on the cross for our sin, but a Jesus that doesn't require holiness of us. Or we can have a, a Christmas Jesus that can be our sacrifice without requiring sacrifice on our parts. But that's not the event that happened. You understand that? It's not the event, the event that ha- it's not this, well, that happened then, and it's, it's, you know, somewhat connected to now, but it's more about that event happened so that I could go to heaven, and no, that event happened, and it means something for now. It's not just Jesus' birthday. Christmas marks that heaven has come upon us, that the kingdom of God is here, that God himself is present. And listen to these words by Paul in 1 Corinthians. Remember, heaven is come upon us. Listen to Paul in verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit what? The kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. Heaven come upon us will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. What does Christmas mark for us? The coming of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God has come upon you. What does Paul say? You don't get to inherit that if these things are true of you. We say, well, it's a good thing I'm not those things, right? What has captured your gaze this past week other than God? What has driven your emotions rather than the glory of God? What has driven the words come from your tongue rather than the holiness of God? Have you ever reviled someone? Like spoken abusively about somebody else to another person. Even with truthful negative information. Ever spent money on self-indulgence? Greedy? Christmas means that the kingdom of God has come upon us. But if we have any of this stuff in us, the kingdom of Christmas, the kingdom of heaven, is not ours to have. You see, Christmas, the, the kingdom of heaven come upon us is not just an event to remember. It's an event that demands something of us. It's an event that transforms We'll talk about how it transforms in a bit. Let me ask you another question. Do you talk about Jesus as though it's a personal belief or as though it's a historical reality? Thinking particularly in your classes, thinking with your coworkers, do you talk about Christmas as though, uh, you know, well, well, my belief is 
this? Or do you talk about it as though there was this historical event where Christ has come? Because if you talk about it that way, then that demands something of your hearers. When we present Jesus the other way, we effectively neuter the gospel. Listen, the gospel is offensive. The lost and self-glorifying soul doesn't want to hear that it needs a Savior. Listen, Christmas means a Savior has come. The implication is that you and I need a Savior. And so when you say, historically, there was a moment in history where God sent a Savior for your soul, you are telling your coworker that they need a Savior and are not sufficient of their own selves. Jesus became a part of history. He's not a fable. It's not an abstract principle. It's transformational. If you believe rightly, it changes things. Part of the reason it doesn't change things in our culture is that we're not changed by the reality of facts much anymore. In our culture, facts don't often change things. Emotions do. Instead of being ruled by the truth, the church, and particularly people who have no concern for the truth in the Word, are ruled by emotions and not by the truth. That's how heaven come upon us can be something we hear, but not something that changes us. Just keep that in mind as you're thinking about your coworkers this time of season. The truth changes. To keep that in mind as we think about ourselves, the truth changes things if we are truth seekers. That's kind of the question when it comes to Christmas. Are we truth seekers? Or are we just emotional feel-good seekers? What are we after? I mean, emotions are important too. But listen, the heaven come upon us means something. Something expected of us. Only those found sexually pure, not worshiping other idols, being faithful in their marriages, not practicing homosexuality, not being thieves, not stealing, not being greedy, not giving yourself to drunkenness, revilers, not being a swindler, only those people will inherit the kingdom of God. The next thing I want you to see, and the last thing is this, that God expects us to seek after and find the best rest. God expects us to seek after and find the best rest. What is Sabbath rest? What is Sabbath rest? If you're super spiritual, it means I need a day to rest and think upon holy things, right? I got a day a week and I don't work and I rest and I think upon holy things. If you're a normal Christian, that's the day I go to church and then I do whatever my heart wants to do the rest of the day. 
In the Old Testament, the Sabbath was on the seventh day. I want to look at a little bit further into the Old Testament, just very briefly here, certainly, uh, about the idea of the Sabbath so that we can understand maybe a little more clearly what Matthew is saying in the first chapter. Listen, in, in the Old Testament, the idea of the Sabbath being on the seventh day was important. That number particularly was important. One day in seven was the Sabbath day. Right? You see in creation, God created, 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 one, two, three, four, five, six, seventh. On the seventh day, God rested. One day in seven was the Sabbath day. You rested from work. And you rested from work because somehow this pointed to a Sabbath rest that God had promised to give Israel, promised to give His people. Then, one whole year out of seven, in the Old Testament, was considered a Sabbath year. In the Sabbath year, the seventh year, debts were to be forgiven, slaves were to be, were to be set free. Why? Because again, that seventh year pointed to a Sabbath rest that God had spoken about. It was to point them to something greater, another reality, beyond the physical that they were experiencing. But think about that for a second. Think about what was to happen in the seventh year. Debts were to be forgiven. Slaves were to be set free. I thought, I thought, Sabbath rest was just about not working. But God's talking here about debts being forgiven, slaves being set free. I thought it was just about work. That we just didn't do work. But it does. These, these ideas of debts forgiven, slaves being set free, has something to do with resting. Because Something changes in status. Something changes in relational status. The, the interaction between people. Something changes there. And something that changes there in the status is connected to this idea of rest. Now, not only were they to rest every seventh year, but then every seven Sabbaths, every seven Sabbath years, rather, which would mean the 49th or the, the 50th year was called what? Does anybody know what that year was called? The year of Jubilee, right? The Jubilee year. What'd you do that year? Rested from labor? Debts were forgiven. Slaves were free. Do you know what else happened that year? Any capital that you had gained for 49 years, you lost. Any capital that you had lost for 49 years, you gained. If you had given up land to pay debts over that 49 years, you got that land back. It was such a radical idea that most scholars believe that the Jews actually never practiced it. Can you imagine after 50 years, some had gotten wealthier, some had gotten poorer, but at the end of the year, it had all evened back out. You go back. 
Again, what's happening? What's happening in the year of Jubilee? Relational status is changed. Instead of being master and slave, we are now co-owners, not necessarily of the same things. Instead of being lorded over and lording over, the ground is changed. Instead of being enslaved to the debt that another holds over you, Listen, what, what happens in relationships when, when, I, when, when one person you owe to that person, like when you owe to this person, what does that do to this relationship, right? It changes things. Like it, it puts a strain on the relationship. It makes it feel weird and awkward sometimes. Well, I owe this to this person. So, so now what I'm thinking is everything that I do, I do because I owe this person, not because I love this person, but because I owe this person. But now in this year of Jubilee, this begins to change. Like we're, now I don't owe you anything anymore, and you don't owe me anything anymore. So now I can, I can give without the hindrance of, I can love neighbor without the, the hindrance of, of my heart thinking, I, I owe you. And it, so relational status begins to change. This year of Jubilee, it, it changes. Relationships change. And what happens? Rest happens. But again, This was God's way of pointing to some greater rest. Now let's look at what Matthew is saying. Verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. Now if you've done any genealogical study... You're going, Matthew, what are you talking about? Uh-uh. There's more than that. There's more generations. There's, there's more fathers in this line. If you compare this with the one in Luke, there, there's more generations in that line. What are you doing, David? I'm sorry, Matthew. He says from Abraham to David, 14 generations. From David to exile, 14 generations. From exile to Jesus, 14 generations. Listen, this is why we read the KJV. Because begat is really the best word. So and so, the, the, the Greek word genea is a word that means the ancestor of, which is different than being the father of. There are places in Matthew. What he does is he actually zooms us in shorter, like he zooms us in closer. He'll say, This guy begat this guy. But actually, the guy who begat this guy is the great-great-great-grandfather of this guy. So when your ESV says, or your NASB says, or whatever says, so-and-so is the father of so-and-so, if by father you mean ancestor of, then yes. But in our modern vernacular, we we don't understand it that way. We think immediate biological parent is the father of this parent. I'm sorry, the father of this person. But what Matthew does is he, he takes that and he shrinks it down and says this person beget this person, even though there might be a few in between there. And then he says at the end, verse 17, 14 generations, 14 generations, 14 generations. He shortens it down to make this point. That Jesus Christ is the seventh seven. What's the seventh seven? 
the year of Jubilee. What is Matthew saying? Listen, 14, 14, and 14 is what? Seven, 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 seven. Matthew is saying this. Jesus is the year that rest comes. Jesus in the flesh is the year, the season, that status changes. This is the year that things are made right again. Jesus come in the flesh is the year of Jubilee. Matthew is saying this ultimately. Jesus is the Sabbath rest that your soul needs. This is what God was pointing to for thousands of years. Listen, the first half of the Gospel is this. Let me quote. The Gospel says, You're more wicked than you ever dared believe, and you're more loved and accepted through Jesus Christ than you ever dared hope. That's the Gospel. You're a wicked, evil sinner. That's the first half. You can't save yourself by being good. That's the second half. Because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross, simply receiving what He did and resting in what He has done, you can be completely accepted and completely loved and completely cherished by God the Father. That is the Gospel. Jesus is what? The Gospel. And Matthew is saying that He has come. Matthew is saying Sabbath rest has come. The year in which everything is made right has come. Now can't you see, when we think about the Gospel here, that both parts, and we're going to explore these for a few moments, both parts of the Gospel bring us rest. Now I think we see that the second part brings us rest, but not the first part. The second part being, Jesus has done this work on the cross, and simply receiving that brings rest. Right. So we got that part, I see that that brings rest. But why don't I see that the first part brings rest? That I'm a wicked, more wicked than I ever dared believe. More loved and accepted through Jesus Christ than I ever dared hope. So on the one hand, let's talk through this. On the one hand, when you accept the fact that you're a condemned sinner, you finally get the rest from hiding. You finally get the rest from hiding. Let's talk about this. I believe that I genuinely spent the first 28, 29 years of my life hiding from the reality that I knew I really was a moral failure. Trying to hide it from other people. Listen, God's Word tells us that until we are willing to confess 
that we are a moral failure, a total mess-up, and that we can never earn our way to God, we're a runner. We're running. Running from reality, trying to hide, like fugitives. And that's tiring. There's no rest in that. There's no rest in running trying to hide from what the Bible has said is the reality concerning our depraved souls. Let me quote again. The Bible says that until you accept the Gospel, you are a mighty tired person, always having to keep up the facade, always being bitter toward people who have shown you where you're wrong and shown you what's wrong with you. Always running, always pursued, Stop your hiding, says the Gospel. Rest. You really are a sinner. Relax. You really are. It's true. We spend all these days, we we spend every conversation trying to twist it, trying to turn it, trying to hide, trying to keep people from seeing the reality that we are. We, We try to blame other people for the sin that's in our own lives. We try to make excuses for why we're not where we should be in our walk with the Lord. We try to push that blame on other people. We try to hide what's really going on in our hearts. And we we try to we spend all this time manipulating situations and conversations and keeping things from other people, and all of that is tiring. Now I know, I know, many of you will quickly say, I know this, I see it, I see that I'm this kind of sinner, and I see this, and and God and I, we talk about it all the time. Or you'll say, well, well, I'm willing to tell other people that I'm a mess up, that that I'm not perfect. I tell people that all the time, well, you know, I did this, but, but I'm not perfect. But listen, can't you actually say those things, like to God, and say to other people, you know, I'm not perfect, and still be hiding? Until you are actually regularly confessing this reality and the details of this reality with another member of the body of Christ, you are still running. There will be no rest for you until you stop running. When you can sit across the table with a believer, particularly one that can engage you and hold you accountable and push you, not softballs. When you can sit across the table and name specific sin and ask them to help you walk in repentance, I think it's arguable that you have stopped hiding at that point. When this is consistently a part of your life, rest comes. You believe. You're believing the first part of the gospel. Let me give you another example. When someone can point out your sin and you can humbly receive it without getting defensive, without your heart getting all torn up in knots, think about how restful that is. 
I mean, think about every time someone's faithfulness is going to rub up against your unfaithfulness, and every time that that happens, that your, your heart gets up in a nod, and you've got to defend yourself, and, or you've got to work in your mind to, to convince yourself that that's not true, and that that person's a bully, or that person's being mean to me, or, or that person's got this sin in their life, and, and, and you spend all your time trying to do that. How tiring is that? How unrestful is that? Listen, I'm telling this as a chief one in participating in the sin. Or when someone can correct your poor understanding or incomplete understanding without getting defensive. You have stopped hiding. And you're believing the first half of the gospel. Listen, I know for a fact that many of you have bitterness towards other people that have shown you where you're wrong because they've shown you where you're wrong. You know why you're bitter? Because you don't believe the first part of the gospel, that you're a moral failure. If you believe you're a moral failure, then nothing anyone says to you will surprise you. You'll go, huh, you know, I don't know if that's true for sure, but it likely is. Oh, I didn't understand that? Well, that's, that's likely true. Let me think about it. Let me pray about it. Let me, let me see if it should walk in repentance. But it's likely true. If I believe the first part of the gospel. See, that's the problem. That's why so much of us lack joy and love for the fathers because we have the second half of the gospel without understanding the first half of the gospel. We have the Jesus died for my sins without understanding what sins did he die for? The fact that I am a moral failure, that I, that I can't keep up this, this fake presentation, that God does know who I am, but He still died for me. You say, well, I'm, I'm too hard on myself. Listen, you're not too hard on yourself. The problem is that you don't run to the gospel Instead, you run to fix yourself. And so you're tired and worn out. Listen, if you think you're too hard on yourself, then the solution will be to be easier on yourself. To be easier on yourself. But that doesn't lead you to Jesus. Being easier on yourself doesn't lead us to Jesus. It leads us to a lack of Sabbath rest. No wonder you're tired. Listen, we're not. We are more evil than we ever dare imagine. So to be too hard is not possible because we'll never fully understand the complete reality of our sin like God does. But let me welcome you to glory. Your problem is not in being too hard on yourself. The problem is is that you struggle to believe the second part of the gospel. The other side of the gospel, and you have to have both, is that it's not your works, but God's works through Christ. It's not what you have done, but what He has done. That's the reason why Paul says in Romans 4, 5, Now to him who works... 
not but believes in the one who justifies the ungodly, your faith is credited to you as righteousness. He says, to him who works not. That's what Paul says. To him who works not, this person has faith, is credited to him as righteousness. So let's be clear. Paul is not saying that you stop striving for holiness. Okay? He's not saying that you stop striving for holiness. Paul is saying, now now you stop thinking that your goodness could ever be good enough to change your relational status with God from enemy to son or daughter. Here's what he's saying. Let me put it in really simple terms. You rest from trying to prove yourself. You rest from trying to prove yourself. Let me quote, If you rest in your own works, you're a fugitive. If you rest in Him, you rest indeed. End quote. Listen, if you believe that you're a moral failure of which you don't understand its fullest extent. And if you believe in what Jesus has done, there you will find rest. It's there that Jesus becomes the season of Jubilee. It's there that all your debt to God has been paid and you owe Him nothing. Do you understand that? Like we're to live as living sacrifices and all that, Romans, but, but we don't owe God anything. Jesus paid it all. The relational status has changed. He's not just Lord. He is Lord indeed, but He's also Father. It's there that the chains of slavery are taken off. It's there that the land is given as your inheritance. It's there that the relational status is changed. It's there that you become an honored member of the family. Just look at the people listed in this genealogy. There's prostitutes. There's incest. There's adultery. And they all become honored members of God's family. It's there that deep rest that your soul needs is found. That's the purpose of the genealogies in Matthew. That's the reason why Matthew goes through all this stuff and says, see, it's 14, 14, 14. Jesus is the year of Jubilee. Jesus is the Sabbath rest. Jesus is the rest for the people of God. This is what it was pointing to. So I ask you again the question, what is Sabbath rest? Is it just avoiding work on a certain day of the week? I mean, I think that should be a part of it, yes. But it's so much more than that. You can have Sabbath rest every moment of every day. So, again, I ask the question, what are you expecting this Christmas Are you expecting to celebrate some past event as awesome as it is? 
Or are you expecting to be changed by this transformational event? Listen, you can patiently wait. Why? Because God keeps His promises. Including the promise of Sabbath rest. Listen, you can be transformed. Why? Because God's Christmas changes everything. And you can find rest. Listen, all of those things in 1 Corinthians, these people shall not inherit the kingdom of God. God's gospel answers our problem. Because Jesus came not only as the kingdom of heaven come upon us, but he comes to live the things that you and I could not keep. And when we stop pretending to God and to each other that we've kept these things, that we're fine, and we embrace and accept and confess, we're not able to do these things that are in keeping with the kingdom of God. And we believe that our works could never make us right, but that Jesus has come. He has lived a life we could not live. He has earned our way into God's kingdom, and He has paid the price for our presence there. To those, they shall inherit the kingdom of God. When you go into Christmas, heaven come upon me, Heaven come down. Heaven, Emmanuel, is here. Walk into that thought. I am more of a failure morally than I could ever even imagine. And I can't make myself right with God. But Jesus has come. Jesus has come. He has come that I might have rest. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for sending your son Jesus to die on the cross for us. Father, to live this life perfectly. He was no adulterer. He was no swindler. He was no reviler. He did not... uh, to anything sexually immoral. He was not a drunkard. He was not greedy. He was not a thief. And Father, we know that the entire kingdom, the universe, is His. And that if we would stop hiding, hiding from each other, we start embracing the good news that Jesus has come, that we might be found in Him. And if we are found in Him, we become inheritors of this same kingdom, the one that has come upon us. Father, may we have hope for something greater this year as we celebrate the birth of your Son, Jesus. It's in His name we pray. Amen.